Welcome, Investigator. Evil is on the rise. Crime is escalating. Our mission is to eliminate the crime by exposing evil, examine why it manifests, and highlight the brave souls that confront it every day. Join us as we work together to bring justice to every victim. Welcome to All Things Crime. Here's your host, Jared Bradley. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of All Things Crime. I am Jared, your host, and I am so excited this morning. I get to have a discussion with Carrie Droven. She is a an attorney, uh, an award-winning author, and she uh, speaks all over the, the country to universities and true crime writers. Boy, it's just her, her list of accolades goes on and on. So I'm going to let her introduce herself. But yeah, I'm just excited to have you on, Carrie. And especially, I think the entire world, if not, and certainly the entire country is extremely interested in an area that I think that you have a lot of expertise in, which is mass shootings and the psychotics that are behind those. So Carrie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's really, it's fun to be here. And of course, talking about subjects near and dear to my heart, (laughs) criminal pathology, crime, murder, violence, you know. Yeah. Who doesn't love those, right? (laughs) Yes, part of my vernacular. Well, how in the world did you go from being an attorney to writing all these books? And how, do you, I, how many books do you have total? I have written eight books total. So I have two novels and six nonfiction true crime. So really, probably my genre is true crime. So it started out in mystery thrillers and moved on to true crime. Wow. Well. I'll tell you what, I'm going to be ordering a few of those to do some of my airplane reading. I uh, (laughs) try to vary things a little bit, and I'm on an airplane enough that, yeah, I think that'll be good reading. But so talk to me a little bit about the progression of how these things kind of evolved into where you are now. Like you started as a defense attorney, correct? Actually, I started as a prosecutor. And I got a lot of trial experience, which is what I really wanted. And the thing that appealed to me about trial work was the idea of telling a story. So I've always been a storyteller. I've always been a writer, but I really never made it a career until I was a defense lawyer. So uh, moving into the dark side. <laughs> so I gained all of my my legwork and kind of worked in the trenches when I was a prosecutor. And I just, I took everything I possibly could to trial. So I did everything from DUIs to homicides. And then I finally moved into defense work and my very first case as a defense lawyer right out of the gate was a death penalty case. <laughs> so I didn't wow. waste any time getting into the really dangerous minds, dangerous criminal minds, basically. So that was just sheer luck. Some people might call it something else, but I call it sheer luck. It became the trajectory of my law career and really opened me up for a lot of writing about cases. I've never really written about anything that I've personally done, but it gave me the perspective and the knowledge to really be able to dive deep into criminal pathology. As one of my goals or jobs as a criminal defense attorney in the capital world was to look through a criminal defendant's past and figure out how I was going to save them. So my job was to save the worst of the worst. And when I say save, it wasn't really to get them off, but it was to get them off death row. So that's Mm. what started. that. Interesting. So 
I actually interviewed, I'm trying to think of what episode it was, but it was a while back. And there was a fence attorney who was in the San Diego area. And uh, I'm embarrassed. I can't remember his name now. It was, great. it was a great discussion. But he, one of his philosophies really was that as a defense attorney, it wasn't necessarily his job to get his client off so much as it was to ensure that the justice system worked properly, especially that the prosecutor did his job and that the judge did his or her job and that his client was properly represented if they didn't do their jobs. And therefore, as a, and I love the way our justice system works, is that you are innocent until proven guilty. And if they don't do a legitimate case and if they don't have enough evidence beyond the reasonable doubt, then I can't even hardly say that, but reasonable doubt, then it's your job as the defense attorney to point all that out and make sure that your client is not held to, a, to an account when they haven't proven it. So is that kind of attorney or just across the legal system or is that yeah, or do you have a different I, philosophy? Yeah, I think that's that's really that's the goal. And that is certainly I would concur with that, that I got into defense work, not only because I found it fascinating and challenging and I could really have discretion in cases, but it was also I really do believe in our Constitution and in truth and justice. And I think I've seen a lot of injustice, I guess, even in the trial work. But I think as long as I'm doing my job to ethically represent this person, I don't really focus so much on what the person did. I focus more on whether or not that person's going to get a fair trial, whether there's something in that person's background that's going to help mitigate the sentence, maybe get them life instead of death. There's a whole host of mental health issues that come into play when you're representing criminal defendants. And so it was really such a fascinating foundation for the work that I did as a true crime writer. And particularly, I mean, you asked me about the trajectory going from writing about and becoming sort of a, an expert in outlaw motorcycle gangs and, and deep cover investigations that, that really blended in or had me talk about this sort of symbiotic relationship between outlaw motorcycle gangs and the mafia. So I went from that to writing what I call the other crime, the other true crime, which homicides and bombing, and then eventually Aurora, which involved a mass shooter, James Holmes, who really, you know, from my perspective, was really a true American psycho. He wasn't insane, but that was certainly the defense that was presented. So I think my perspective as not only a defense attorney, but a capital lawyer was really helpful in writing Aurora, because I really could see it from both perspectives. And I know that his defense team presented an insanity case. And so that was fascinating because we don't have insanity defense in Arizona. But I certainly understood what they were trying to do and what they were trying to present and the battle of the experts. And so it really was a perfect culmination of my work as a defense lawyer and my interest and fascination in criminal pathology blended the two when I got to Aurora. Wow. Yeah, that's definitely going to be the first book that I uh, get, because I think James Holmes was, like you said, how do you describe him other than just completely psychotic to do what he did? And the interesting thing about the whole psychology of criminals is I don't think I don't think there's a huge divide between what normal people think about and then what psychotics actually do. And I think pretty much everybody has run into somebody that is just like, they just do not click. And they're like, I just 
if I don't get away from this person, I'm going to do something. I think that thought process has gone through most people's heads. And maybe I shouldn't say most people because maybe I'm one of those. But um, (laughs) my wife has said that sometimes. But the key is, I think the rational thought process that most of us go through to where even if we had some kind of a crazy idea, the rationality in our brains would basically stop us from doing anything like that. And yet, somehow there's a disconnect with these other folks that, like James Holmes, that just, it enables them to actually go through with it. And is that part of your research? Yeah, that's a really good point, because that's what makes it so difficult to not only spot a so-called killer, or stop them. It's really difficult. I call it like they're like psychological dark matter. They blend in. And that's the truth of it. And the rub of it is that really people that are differences, somebody that plans it, they think about it, they acquire the arsenal, they plan it, and then they somehow publicize it. That's the difference. Did they have a motive, a specific target, a specific plan? Those are the people that are actually going to carry something out. Versus the people that are, like, as you said, they might, there might be something off about them. They're definitely strange. They're definitely different. They're the person that's walking around with dark sunglasses on, maybe a loner and characterizes a sort of lone wolf, you know? And what I would say to that is I don't believe people snap. There isn't such a thing as people snapping. There, there's something that they've carried this around with them for a long time. And whether or not they are detected really depends on whether they have recorded it, told somebody about it. And the other rub of this is that really most of these people, these mass shooters, they're not seeking out any type of psychiatric help. They're not in therapy. They're not under counseling. And that's what makes it even more difficult to stop them. To your point, I think the reason I wrote this book was it was it's through the perspective and the point of view of James Holmes' psychiatrist, Dr. Fenton. She was his treating psychiatrist. And so Aurora is like this inside voyeuristic view of the life cycle of a mass shooter, because there has not been any other psychiatrist ever that has been publicly outed before the way Dr. Fenton was. And so she wanted to write this story to be able to not only explain what she went through, but also to give people that perspective of what is it like to have this. James Holmes, for example, was a brilliant doctoral student. He was in the neurosciences program at one of the most prestigious universities in the country. He was being schooled by some of the most brilliant minds in our country, right? They were literally had him in their class watching him. So you have all of these neuroscientists, you have six other students in the class with Holmes, and you have Dr. Fenton, who, by the way, was also in the top 1% of her profession. So you have all of these brilliant minds, and they could not spot James Holmes. So that's what makes this book fascinating, is you look at, she had six sessions with him, and she certainly described him as an awkward, very strange, almost robotic. In fact, one of the early meetings she had with him She describes him as sitting in her waiting area, very similar to a dead body. The way he was so stiff and the way he sat in his chair, he was not what you would consider normal under any circumstances. And yet, nobody ever suspected that he would carry out this horrific crime in the movie theater, literally several months later. 
So it was very much hidden. But what I will say is that he was unusual in the sense that he was actually seeking out psychiatric help, but he wasn't seeking it out for anything that was necessarily wrong with him. He was seeking it out under the advice of his professors who thought he had some anxiety issues because he had issues with public speaking. He couldn't get up and give a presentation, so they thought he might need some help in that area. It unbeknownst to them that he had these fantasies about killing for a very long time. When, when you say fantasies, is it that's all documented? All documented. It's documented in about 24 hours of interviews with his court-appointed psychiatrist when he went to trial, where he explains to his court-appointed psychiatrist that from the age of 10, he had fantasies about killing people, but he never shared them with anybody. And that's the rub of it. That's scary because how many other people out there are having these fantasies? Maybe a lot, but they don't act on it. But Holmes acted on it. He actually believed, he had this theory, which he called human capital. He believed that people had value. He assigned points to like a video game. And he believed that by killing them, he would increase his own self-worth. And that was really what he believed. And it wasn't crazy, which is fascinating. Of course, his defense team would disagree with me and say that he was crazy. But Dr. Fenton did not believe he was crazy. She believed he was evil. And that in itself is also fascinating because as a doctor, as a psychiatrist, her job is to help. How do you help a person who is fundamentally? That is a great question because, and interestingly enough, I've actually done a number of other podcasts that are episodes where I've explored that on, just on my limited understanding, just based on just some of the things that have been happening around the world and I think there's different levels of evil, and I think there's a little bit of evil in all of us just because of our carnal nature. But as you progress into these different levels, I think the ultimate one is where you're actually directing other people to do violence, and which the true psychotics like Hitler and people like that are in that category. But I think the second level, and you know, help me out if I'm wrong here, I, need, I really need to throw these out at some of my true psychologist friends like Dr. Lee Miller. Have you ever heard of Dr. Miller? Yeah. Okay. His name is uh, Lee Miller. He's a specialist in serial killings and serial rapings and great, but he is, boy, when he, when you really get talking about this kind of stuff with him, it goes deep in a real hurry. And uh, he said some of the conversations that he has at bars, people are like, oh, hey, let's get to know each other. And then he'll get a little bit into what he's doing. And they're like, uh, I think I'll go meet somebody else. Yeah, but, the conversations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, but he's his understanding of this dark psyche that you're talking about is just next level. And I would love to get the two of you in a room and just record that conversation because I think it would be fascinating. Anyway, Dr. Lee Miller, look him up if well, uh, you get a chance. but. Yeah. Anyway, I think the the second level is depriving people really of their freedoms. And like you said, the, there's some kind of something that flips in their mind or some kind of a belief system where they feel it's their right or even obligation to deprive other people of their freedom and sometimes even their life. And to me, that's I don't, I don't know where that would come from. Do you have any idea? Well, I think what you're talking about is there there is a spectrum and i think there are differences so there's their personality disorders i think is what you're referring to you have a narcissist a sociopath and a psychopath and there are gradations between them so every sociopath and psychopath is a narcissist 
but not every narcissist is a sociopath or a psychopath. And so the way that I've defined it, and of course, I'm not a psychologist, but in my work with truly dangerous people, I've seen psychopaths as the very far end, what you're describing, you know, where they really, in my research, are born that way. We call them antisocial personality disorders. They're the psychopaths. And when I saw that in the cases that I worked, I used to cringe because I thought, there's nothing I can do for people like that. They're not remorseful. They don't have a conscience. That's, those are the subject of Dr. Hare's work, you know, where you have that checklist where are they the true psychopath? And many of them are these disarming, charming people, like Ted Bundy types, where you're lulled into this sense that there's something, they seem normal, but there's something off about them. And they don't have any conscience. And then you've got the sociopaths who... Just really quick, Carrie, before you move on to the, those psychopaths that you're describing, how do they hide it so well? Like, especially you, you talk about some of your clients, when you recognize that, first of all, what went through your mind? But second of all, as you're kind of delving and getting to know this person a little deeper so that you can defend them, how did they hide it? They hide it. And this is a generality, of course, but they hide it because many of them are very charming. And so have you heard of the mask of sanity? They learn how to mimic or imitate emotions. They don't actually feel them themselves. So they don't have fear, for example, but they understand what that is and they could mimic that. Or where I, I call it the creepy clown syndrome, where you're, you're lured into them. There's something that attracts you to them and maybe it's that, but their expression, their false face, their expression, their feelings are not authentic. And so there's something that is repellent about them as well. So you're, it's that, that dichotomy of being sucked in and then realizing, wait a second, there's something off about them. And so I think for the psychopaths, many of them are very glib, very charming. They're grandiose. They've got these, some of them can weave an incredible story about what their life is, but it's all fake. Whereas the sociopath is a lot of times it's learned behavior. They're not necessarily born that way. And they live them and they blend among us that are like one in 25 of us is one, you know, and most wow. of them, yeah, most of them are not killers. They're not in prison. They just, they think differently than we do. They have guilt, but it's not the same. It's not this, it's not shame. It's not remorse. It's something different. And a lot of people confuse the terms. They think so. They confuse the, like they're interchangeable and not, they're different, but you know, they're the CEOs and the doctors, the cops, the surgeons and they blend in and when I call them like psychological dark matter they just they are they live among us and they're not easy to spot but I will tell the one way to spot them <laughs> is because they want you they play this pity play and they're always the victim they're always blaming somebody else and they want you to take pity from them. and so that's a great way to spot a sociopath interesting always wanting to be the victim so they're always degrading themselves kind of well, it's always somebody else's fault that they didn't get that promotion. They didn't get that job. It's somebody else's fault that they didn't get that. Or if it's like, poor me, the closet. Great example is somebody that, how do I explain this? The dumbest example is they walk around with a neck brace and there's nothing wrong with their neck. <laughs> but people are going to ask them, what wow. happened to you? Oh, you poor thing or whatever. And so then they're suing people or they're doing, I mean, these are, their actions are have pity on me. And so the person that, doesn't know them any better is going to feel pity for them. 
and then be caught up in their web of lies and their web of they're part of that. It's a sociopath thinks it's fun to deceive. Generalities, but yeah. Wow. I'm just, boy, my mind is just tripping right now. So, especially thinking about some of my relatives. <laughs> no, I, yeah. But, People in the going, oh, I wonder. Yeah, I'm like, oh, all right. And it, who knows Jared? And I wonder if he thinks I'm a. But basically, I think, and the thing that popped into my head as you were talking was they use this pity just as a draw for attention. So is it the need for, because they're also narcissistic is what you're saying. So is it kind of a, a need for them to get other people's attention and maybe playing the victim is the easiest way to do that? It's manipulation. It's psychological manipulation. And it's also part of their control. So when they have the pity play is somebody, they've lured somebody in and now they've got them. So it's a way of getting attention. It's also a way of controlling their victim. Yeah. And I can certainly see the way if somebody is playing the victim all the time, then deflecting any personal responsibility and accountability is pretty easy to do. Wow. So interesting. Okay. Yeah. All right. We're getting deep into this stuff. So James Holmes, let's talk specifically about him. We've kind of described him a little bit, but was he also playing the victim? For example, not being able to stand up and talk in front of the class. Did he fall into that category? No, he didn't. He fell more into probably that this is what he actually believed. He believed that he would assign different points to people arbitrarily. There was no rhyme or reason to this. And he would acquire their self-worth. It was very robotic. And in some respects, just to give you an idea of this, he planned this murder. He was very methodical about it. And this is all recorded and written down in a notebook that he sent to Dr. Fenton after the fact. So he didn't want her to stop. So it was very organized and planned. He chose the theater because it was mass casualties and nobody could exit. And he, and he went through it methodically. He thought, should I choose an airport? Should I choose Tylenol, a bomb? And let's not forget he had two crime scenes. So not only did he plot to murder all these people in the theater, but he plotted a decoy at his own apartment. He planted homemade bombs in his apartment designed to explode when first responders went to his apartment. So the whole building would have gone up. Fortunately, that didn't happen. Something happened with his, his technique or his technology. But yeah, so he planned this whole thing and didn't tell anybody about it. And the whole time that he was having these sessions with Dr. Fenton, he was also amassing an arsenal. He was ordering weapons online and going into sporting goods stores, going to the shooting range, target practicing. So this was all part of his whole ideology. And the thing that he went to school for was so that people could study his own brain. <laughs> he wanted to survive this mass shooting, and he took great measures to survive it. He wore a bulletproof vest, all kinds of ballistic gear. He had his own weapons. He wanted to get caught, and he wanted to survive so that people would study his brain. What do you call that? It's organized. Yeah, the ultimate narcissist. Yes, exactly, right? Like almost narcissism to the extreme. But this is what this was his belief system. And nothing was going to stop him. And he that's the scariest part of this, is that if he was truly insane, as look, anybody that commits an act like this, we want to just say they've got to be insane. They had to have, it's a senseless act. They had to have been insane. And when they're actually not, and they can't be put on a mental health hold because they're not, that's the scary part. 
That's the part that says there is no rhyme or reason, therefore they must be evil. And that's what Dr. Fenton concluded. Thanks for joining us. Your attention today brings us one step closer to exposing and eliminating the evil that brings crime to our communities. Hit subscribe and share this episode. Together, we will bring justice to every victim.